awestruck wonder at the mention of Gracious Father, we are indeed struck with awe and wonder for who you are, for all that you have done for us and for this world. We come today to worship because of who you are, because of what you've done. And our our prayer is that our worship will draw us closer to you and open our hearts to you and truly bring glory to you. And we pray that you will help us do just that as we worship together. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Before you see seated, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. As we gather for worship today, there are a lot of things happening in the life of the church uh, throughout the week and uh, throughout today. Uh, this, today, uh, after uh, this morning, there are a couple of things happening today to want to make you aware of. Uh, as I think many of you know, uh, Pastor Todd and, and Mary are uh, moving on to another place of ministry at the end of May. And uh, before school was out uh, at the college, we wanted to have an opportunity for uh, gathering and just celebrating their time here and expressing our gratitude and, and friendship to them. And so this afternoon from 2 to 4, you're invited to come to the community room and uh, just come and go uh, reception for them. Uh, there'll be a little bit of food there and uh, some things things for you to, uh, ways to express your uh, your appreciation and uh, gratitude to them for their ministry. So we hope you'll be able to, to come at uh, some point today from 2 to 4 uh, to uh, honor them and to express your words of appreciation to them. 
Tonight we'll be meeting here in the sanctuary at 6 o'clock and uh, we'll be having a, a time of worship. It'll go to about 6.45 so it'll allow you, those of you who want to go to Koinonia, to do that at 7. And our, our intern, Stacey Hinderleiter, is going to be preaching tonight and uh, we'll also be singing together and, uh, and offering prayers together as well. So we hope you'll join us this evening at 6. Next Sunday morning, we gather for worship again at 8, 29, 40, and 11. You also note that on May 19th, is a cleanup day here at the church. It's an annual event, so put that on your calendar. There are always uh, things for us to pray about, uh, things that are concerning, uh, in, you know, specifically for us, as well as things around the world, and we want to ask for God's grace on each of those. Uh, there are some inserts in your bulletin as well, and uh, we want to... Um, encourage you about uh, ministry this summer with our children. Uh, you can minister in children's church and also in summer Sunday school. And if you would like to uh, to be a part of those uh, ministries, you can fill out those forms, drop them in the offering plate, or uh, drop them by the church office. Also note that there's a, an insert about another prayer event that we're doing. Uh, last year we did this, uh, just a 48-hour time of prayer, specifically focusing on our graduates. High school graduates and college graduates. And if you were part of this last year, uh, you know that we had a a listing in the prayer room of all the graduates uh, to give you a chance to pray specifically for them. And we're going to begin this on uh, this coming Friday morning at 6, and it will end next Sunday morning at 6. So it's just 48 hours. And you can sign up this morning. Uh, Again, you can sign up online anytime, but you can sign up this morning in the foyer here. And uh, we want to encourage you to, uh, to take at least an hour to pray for our graduates, to ask God's grace upon them and wisdom at a very important time of life. And it's a great opportunity for us to minister to our graduates during these times of praying together. We have a great privilege of, um, of having so many children in our congregation. And it's so exciting to me to, uh, to see that and to have them be a part of our, of our family. And we have a a privilege from time to time to dedicate them to God. And this morning we have the opportunity to do that. Stephan and Jan, you brought this child whom God has given you to be dedicated to God and to his service. By this act, you signify your own faith in Jesus Christ and your desire that he receive the benefits of dedication to God and the prayers of the church and may early learn to know and follow the will of God. And thus doing, may live and die a Christian, attaining in the end of this earthly life to everlasting life in the kingdom of God. But in order that this may be accomplished, it will be your duty as parents to teach your child early the fear of the Lord, to watch over his education that he may not be led astray by false teachings or doctrines, to direct his mind to the Holy Scriptures as expressed in the will and authority of God for all humanity, and to direct his feet to the sanctuary, to restrain him from evil associates and habits, and as much as possible to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Will you endeavor to do so with the help of the Lord? In Mark's gospel, the 10th chapter, we read these words. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, 
and bless them. What name have you given your child? Ezra Gustav Schilke, on behalf of your parents, your family, and this congregation, I dedicate you to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As I like to mention every time we dedicate our children to God, this is uh, we're entering into a threefold covenant uh, around this little one. God is the, the base of, uh, I think of it sort of as a triangle, and God is the base of that triangle upon which everything rests. And, and we know from the scriptures and we know even from our own lives that God is always faithful to his children, and he will always be active in Ezra's life. And Stephan and Jan and their family have made their commitments this morning to do everything in their power to help him know Christ and follow Christ. But we also have a responsibility as the family of God in this place to nurture him and to be a witness to him and to care for him. And so I want to invite you to stand and to offer your affirmation and support to this little one in this family. As the church of Jesus Christ, will you, with the help of God, do everything possible to help Ezra grow in the nurture and grace of Jesus Christ? Will you love him? Will you be a godly witness to him? And will you help him to know and accept the grace of God in his life? If so, answer, we will. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this little one that you brought into the world. We thank you for Ezra and for how much you love him and care for him and desire him. We pray that throughout the days of his life, he will respond positively to your love. That he will be known as he grows, as, as a young man who follows you and serves you. And as he grows older, he will continue to be known by his relationship with you. We pray, Father, that you will bless Jan and Stephan's parents. And that you will give them the grace that they need to, to teach him and to nurture him and to to help him know your love and grace in his life. We pray that you will give that same grace to Anna and Tess and to Micah, and Lydia and Eben and Claire as older siblings, that their walk with you would, would lead him in his walk with you. And we pray, Father, for your blessing upon this family, that they will know your grace every day. Father, help us as your people in this place to commit ourselves to nurturing Ezra and loving him and being a witness to him that will cause him to see you as you desire to be seen. Lord, we pray your best upon him. We dedicate him to you and to your glory, to your purposes. And we ask this through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <laughs> Good morning. I'm Daryl Stevenson. I'm the vice chair of the Board of Elders. Some of you who watch TV remember the commercial, I'm sure, of the shopper who is uh, in the big box store who steps up to make a purchase. And uh, as he or she does that, the confetti uh, starts falling down, the balloons start flowing, the band starts playing because that person has now been the one millionth shopper in that store. 
certainly a memorable moment for both that store and for that shopper. And in a similar way, but a whole lot of years earlier than that, the account in Joshua 4 speaks about us taking note of events that are used for instruction, for piling up stones. And we have a pile of stones out here on the lawn for a similar purpose. They're a reminder that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that we should remain faithful and that we should love him. This morning, the Houghton Wesleyan Church is now having a similar moment. After 160 years since the founding and 78 years since this building was built and dedicated, and over 30 different pastors who have led worship over the uh, many decades, we are led in worship this morning by the now longest-serving pastor of this church. Pastors Wes and Cindy have now served this church longer than the Reverend J.R. Pitts in the 1920s and 30s, and that was about 16 years. So now in his 17th year, which started just this spring, we wanted to celebrate by noting this milestone. So we marked the moment with imagined confetti and balloons and bands playing and a pile of stones here. We'll have to imagine that. We're asking at this point, and we will, by the way, uh, expand on this in uh, future highlights, but we wanted to mark this moment this time because so many students will be off and on their way to the four winds in the next, uh, in the next week or so. So we're taking a moment to mark this point of this church. So I'm going to ask Pastors Wes and Cindy to come forward here. I think it's appropriate for you and me to warmly welcome them and thank them for those years of service. In his letter of challenge during the uh, expectation relative to the future, written in the Susquecentennial booklet several years ago, Pastor West wrote this. The challenge for us is not only to explore and to understand the past, but to move forward. The God who inspired, strengthened, and empowered our spiritual ancestors is the same God who desires to inspire, strengthen, and empower us now. Though it may be difficult to comprehend at times, his plans for us are just as grand and as far-reaching as they were his plans for them, our ancestors. At this time of celebration and remembrance, the challenge is clear. Are we ready to move forward? Are we willing to risk? Are we committed to the God and to uh, to one another in ways that enable us to inspire those who will look back on our lives and on our decisions as the people of the Houghton Wesleyan Church? We would like to have Pastor Wes and Cindy just kneel at the altar, and I've asked one of our Board of Elders members, Ryan Cool, to come forward and to kind of pray over and with you and us together as we uh, seek to kind of commit this time and this moment to the future for uh, the paths that have been started by so many before us to an ever greater maturing of our own faith. And I'll ask you also to pray a personal prayer of commitment to each other, to the continued ministries of this church, and to supporting and encouraging these pastors as they continue. So would you please, Neil? Would you please join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful for the, the ministry of Pastor West and Pastor Cindy, Lord. Do you know how 
much they've impacted the lives of most of us in this room, Lord. And we're just thankful for uh, for the privilege of, of having them here in this congregation, Lord. Uh, God, we just pray that you would continue to be with them in their ministry. Uh, give them peace. Uh, give them good health. Uh, help them as they continue to minister to our needs. You know how many countless hours that entails, Lord. God, again, we're just so thankful for their ministry and uh, how they show the example of loving you, Lord, and that we uh, see you when we uh, deal with these people, Lord. We're we're very fortunate, and we know that, Lord, and we just pray that, uh, again, that you would just be with them as they continue their ministry. We're thankful for this milestone. We're, we're very privileged to have them in this church for uh, this long, and we just pray that... Uh, that you'd continue to work through them as, as we get the privilege of ministering with them now. God, again, we just thank you for this time. I thank you for these people. In your name, amen. At this time, we'd like to invite our ushers forward to receive our morning tithes and offerings. And children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for Children's Church. All the earth come alive, lift your eyes to the morning. Let our hearts beat again with a lifeblood that never fails. Your love, it will never fail. Breaking down the divide in a holy collision. The divine in disguise took our cross for our sin and shame. Our God, you will never fail. See the lost in return, swing the doors ever wider. See the tide as it turns, love and mercy is on the rise. As the world folds into your creation will see your light. Hear the sound of freedom rise as our song breaks the silence. Echoing the angel cry, let us lift up your holy name. Hereafter to sing your Stars in surrender. God above, kings and queens, every idol will bend and break. But our God, you will never fail. Forever and ever, we will hold, we will love, we will fall in surrender. We will rise, we will run, we will live to. 
God, who will never fail, we offer our prayers. As we join in prayer today, you, you may feel a burden about something in your life, something in the uh, life of someone else, maybe a burden about something in the world, and you'd like to come to the altar rail and, and pray here, I invite you to join me as we pray together. Father, we come to this moment of prayer knowing that you are a God who never fails. That in itself is almost almost impossible for us to fully comprehend because we live in a world of failure. A world in which we fail far too often in a world in which others fail us far too often, a world in which we witness failure every day, and yet we've come today to stand on the promise that you are a God who never fails. Because you never fail, we, we come to you today with our hearts open to you and laying before you the burdens that we feel today. 
burdens about our lives and things we're struggling with and burdens in the lives of people we care for, people that are acquaintances of ours, people that we're connected to, and, and situations and burdens in this country and around the world. We're burdened about the future. We're, we're burdened about the present. We, we struggle with fear and anxiety. We struggle with forgiveness. We struggle to receive and to believe your grace. We struggle about experiencing your love. We struggle with living out our faith as you call us. For all of these burdens, we lay them before you today knowing that you are a God who never fails. You always keep your promises. And we pray on that foundation and on that rock today. Lord, we know that you hear us when we pray. We know that you hear our prayers, all of them. And we know that you are at work when we see it and when we don't. And so we offer our prayers today in faith, trusting in who you are, believing in what you have promised to do, and laying our lives before you with all that we are. And we pray this through the power and the grace and the mercy and the strength of Christ. Remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Chapter 2. False teachers and their destruction. But there were also false teachers among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example 
of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of this sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sitting. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their back on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowings in the mud. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand and sing with us.
Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you so much for your love and prayers and support. It hardly seems possible that more than 16 years have passed since uh, we moved here. But one of the things that you find, and I find as you look back, and I'm sure you do this as well, is that there are a lot of things that have changed over those 16 years. And one of the things that I think we would probably say has changed is that I think we've, we probably live in a culture and society in which it feels as though the church is more and more under attack. If, you, if I asked you the question, where, where do you think is the greatest threat to the church? I suspect we'd get a lot of answers. Based on the emails that I tend to get and websites that I get directed to and conversations I overhear, I would say that the, many Christians believe that the greatest threats to the church are... Islam, uh, dictator states that persecute the church. There are people who would say that, um, that Hollywood is the greatest threat to the church or the government. And that the, uh, the teaching of our, some of the things taught in our educational system, these, the ideas of evolution and atheism. Some would say that the American Civil Liberties Union is the greatest threat to the church. Some of the social issues that seem to be pressing in on the church. There are all kinds of things. and depends on your perspective and what you, what you deal with every day. It probably has a bearing on what you think would be the greatest threat to the church. But there is no doubt that the church is under threat. And that we're continually being pushed more and more about who we are and standing up for God. And that one of the calls of the church is to do that, is to be the people of God in the midst of a culture and a society that is opposed to God. And we see that more and more, it feels like at least, but the reality is this has always been the case with God's people. The culture and the society in which the people of God operate has always been pushing and shoving and, and squeezing God's people. And you see this as as you read through the pages of the New Testament. But I think that one of the things that we find in the Scriptures, and certainly one of the the key elements of this passage we read this morning, is that the greatest threat to the church is not from outside the walls of the church, but from inside the church. The evil one knows that if he can begin to turn the church away from its mission, if he can turn the church away from what is most important, Turn the church away from focusing on Christ and all that Christ has done. If he can accomplish that, then the church will be weak and ineffective and have no witness in the world. And the church will crumble. It seems to be what is happening with the people to whom Peter writes this second letter. And here in the second chapter of that letter, we get a clear indication that that the there are, there are deceivers within the church who are attempting, doing everything in their power to turn the church away from Christ, away from its mission, away from what it was created to be. He begins in verse 1 saying, 
There are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, who bought them, bringing to swift destruction on themselves. And he goes on throughout this chapter to talk about all of the ways in which the people, these false teachers, are turning the church away from Christ. It comes down to denying Christ. That's the key thing. And any time we turn people away from, from focusing on Christ, we are in essence denying Christ. And these people are caught up in greed. They're caught up in all kinds of sexual immorality. They're caught up in self-centeredness. They're caught up in all the things of this world. And it's not enough that they are simply themselves turning away from Christ. But they're doing everything in their power to turn everyone else away from Christ. Verse 14, he talks about how they, they have taken on the characteristics of Balaam. And we didn't read that passage this morning, but you go back to uh, Numbers 20, uh, 24 in that vicinity. is three or four chapters there. And it's a story of uh, the king of Moab who wants to hire Balaam to come and curse Israel. And Balaam, who is has a follower of Yahweh in some form, says, no, I couldn't do that. But they keep pressing him, pressing him and offering him more money and more money and more money. And finally he says, okay. And when he gets there, God won't allow him to curse them. Instead, he blesses them, and that gets him in all kinds of trouble. But God condemns him because he's willing to take money to curse God's people. And Peter says they're like that. Greed and the things of this world are so important to them that they will deny Christ. They'll deny that, that, that they even follow Christ. It will bring them stuff in this world. But verse 18, I think, presents the most dangerous part of what they do. And he says, They mouth empty, boastful words by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature. And they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. There are people in that fellowship who have just come to Christ. They have just come into the faith. They've just begun to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And these false teachers, these deceivers in the church, are trying to lure them out of their relationship with Christ into into following them. And Peter says, this is going to kill the church. These false teachers are so dangerous They are willing to deceive the innocent and the vulnerable and and try to turn them away from Christ. And it's all about about denying that Christ is God. It's all about denying that Christ is risen. It's all about denying that Christ is the focus of what it means to be a believer and a follower of God. What's so frightening about that as we read this, this is a passage you read through, and and you, you can read through it sort of feeling like, well, that's really bad that that was happening to them. But, you know, that's not about us. What's frightening is that when you get to the end of this chapter, he in essence says that these, some of these deceivers started out right and in wrong. Now, this is a controversial passage. You know, if you, if you follow anything related to theology, especially if you think about Calvinist and Arminian theology... You know, you, you have this, uh, you know, there, there are some who, who believe that you, once, you, once you commit yourself to follow Christ, then nothing can ever change that. And there are, you know, lots of discussions about that. And then there are others who believe that 
you can commit yourself to Christ and at some point in time you can decide you don't want to be a follower of Christ anymore. And you have that choice. And the scriptures, in, in essence, the scriptures tell us both things. It's one of those, it's, it's one of those paradoxes like we talked about a few months ago. It's because the scriptures tell us that we're secure in Christ and, and Christ holds on to us. But the scripture also tells us many times that we continually have the right to choose. And, and it's one of those issues that we're never going to settle now because theologians who are much smarter than I am certainly haven't figured it out. And so, and yet when we read this passage, Peter's warning is clear. Be careful. Because there were people who were on the right path and they were following Christ and now aren't. And they've become a part of this this group of false teachers. And we need to be so careful that we are walking with Christ because the evil one is continually wanting to pull us away from Christ. You think about the, really, what it means to, to decide that, you know, Christ is, is not that important to me. And none of us would say, I don't think any of us would say, I deny that, that Jesus is God, or I, I deny that, that in the resurrection, or the power of the crucifixion. It's usually not so much about what we believe, as it is how we live out what we believe. And that's the struggle, and that's Peter's warning to the people to be careful because you can subtly deny Christ by how you live out what you believe. When you read through this, this passage, you, you, you find Peter talking about uh, people who, who have, have so, are so enamored with themselves that we begin to believe that our, our walk with Christ is really about what we do. And we become, in essence, practicing atheists. You know, we say we believe in God, we, we, we trust God, it's all about the Holy Spirit in us, but the way we live out our lives, I'm not sure it always communicates that. Wesley Duell, who's written a lot of books about prayer and, and, uh, and, and the life of the church, says, in essence, that the, the, the Satan really isn't all that concerned about about stopping all of the Christian work that we do. Satan's not all that concerned about people who are zealous for the kingdom as long as he can get us to do that in our own power instead of in the power of the Spirit. And he makes a statement that what Satan wants us to do is to engage in more work than what we are able to saturate with prayer. That we engage in more work than we're able to saturate with prayer. Because that means it's about what we do, not what the Spirit is doing through us. And we wrestle with, with believing right things that can lead us to, to living arrogantly in this world. But how we treat people. There was an article this week in, uh, on CNN uh, about some evangelical leaders who, have, who wrote an article. And it was interesting to me that it was on the front page of the CNN webpage. Where they were saying... As Christians, we, we need to stand firm for what we believe, but we need to do it in a way that communicates the grace of Christ. And we need to get rid of all the name-calling and vilifying people who have different opinions than we do, because that's not communicating the Spirit of Christ. 
We can believe the right things, and yet we live in such a way that, that it appears as though Christ has no bearing on how we communicate to people and the attitudes that we have. And, and that's just as important. You get to verse 19 here, and, and Peter talks about these people who are slave to, slaves to whatever has mastered them. And I want us to take just a moment this morning to think about what masters us. What is it that, that masters you and me? And I'm just gonna, we're just going to take 60 seconds of silence just to honestly ponder that question. What is it that masters me? Lord, make clear to us the things that master us, that get in the way of you. And help us to continually surrender those to you through the grace of Christ. Amen. This passage really is is not so much written about a warning to us about how we are like the people who are deceiving the church. It's an important part of what Peter's talking about here, but what he's really getting at, I think, is that when you live so long with with people who are opposed to God and people who are twisting the gospel and, and people in the church particularly who are deceptive and you watch them rise in power and influence, it is so discouraging, you want to give up hope. And I think Peter writes this because the people to whom he's writing have given up hope. They watch these people they know are not following Christ and they're not teaching Christ and they're deceptive and they're twisting the gospel. And and these people are watching them rise in power and influence in the church and they keep praying about it and nothing seems to happen and they've given up hope. And Peter says, we have hope. Don't give up hope because our God never forgets his promises. And the promises of God that Peter talks about here are like two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, Peter says, God does not forget his promise to judge those who are opposed to him. Sometimes we don't like talking about judgment. You know, we we like talking about the positive things. We're like talking about all of the good things that God does, but the reality is you cannot read the scriptures without seeing clearly that our God is just and he cares about justice and he punishes the wicked. Peter gives us three Old Testament examples here. You know, he talks about the flood, which is probably familiar to most of us or you know, the people of the earth were so wicked that God says, I'm gonna start all over again. And he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and the people of this, these towns that are so wicked, he says, I, I have to, to, to end them. 
And he talks about the angels who have, who have come into the world and, and they have corrupted human beings. And he's not sure exactly what he's talking about, but it seems that he goes back to Genesis 6 and the opening phrase of that that says that the sons of God uh, had relations with the daughters of men. And scholars through the century have been trying to figure that out. And, and it seems that the, Peter is going back to the Jewish tradition, which says, in essence, that the sons of God are angels. And these angels have become corrupted, as we know many of them did, and, and followed Satan. And they become corrupt. And a part of that corruption is there is lusting after the women of the earth. And they, and they engage with them and they corrupt them. And it's out of that that the world becomes so corrupted that God says, I have to start all over again. And he sends the flood. And Peter's point is, God judges wickedness. And when we live in a world that where it feels as though the people who are wicked and evil seem to get away with it, Peter reminds us they don't. And we might not see the judgment now. We, we might not see God at work now. But we have to believe that God cares about justice. Now, we're talking about people who have decided that they are obstinate toward God. You know, sometimes when we think about judgment, we, we start putting that on anyone that we disagree with. Or anyone that we don't, we don't like their behavior. And, and I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about people who have decided, I want absolutely nothing to do with God. Yeah, I know all about Jesus. I understand all about what God has done. I don't care. And I don't, it's not only just about me, but like these false teachers, I want to drag as many people down as I possibly can with me. And God judges people. God cares about justice. And, and we want God to care about justice. We want God to care that, that wickedness and, and people who are committed themselves to evil have consequences to that, don't we? I mean, that's why we have a justice system in our nation and nations around the world. We care about it because we believe that it's important to have consequences to, to the things that we've committed ourselves to. And God says people are going to be held accountable for this kind of behavior. People who know me, people who understand what I've offered them and reject it outright and do everything they can to destroy my people and, my, and the kingdom and the church, they will face consequences. And when it feels like God is silent, Peter says you have to believe God is at work. He is the ultimate judge. But he also says, not only the other side of the coin is that we have hope, not just because God remembers and, and will, keeps his promise about judging the wicked, but also, as he says in verse 9, God will rescue the godly from trials. God rescues his people. Now, that doesn't mean that God eliminates trials from our life. We know that's not true. And... We have, a, we have a long history of people to bear witness to that truth. Jesus says to his disciples, if they rejected me, they're going to reject you. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. God does not promise to eliminate trials from our lives. He does, however, promise to rescue us in those trials. And the rescue may come in this world. 
the rescue may come in the world to come. But our hope is that God understands and God is with us and God is helping us and and God is giving us the grace that we need in the midst of the trials. And ultimately, we will be rewarded by God for standing firm with him. And so when he talks about the story of the flood and he talks about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, remember Noah, God rescued him. And remember Lot, God rescued him. And Lot's an interesting character because if you read, go back and read Genesis, you, you find that Lot actually isn't all that righteous. He actually seems to me pretty compromising. I mean, he's in Gomorrah because he keeps making compromising decisions over and over again. And yet Peter says he's a righteous person and God pulls him out. And I think it does give us an image of how God, you know, the, the way in which God is looking at judgment and, and blessing and rescue. Because when when push comes to shove, despite the compromising decisions that Lot has made, when push comes to shove, he does what's right. And deep in his being, even though he makes mistakes, he he wants to do what is right and to treat people right. And something of Yahweh is in him. And God will rescue people who want Yahweh in their lives. This word rescue is is a word that is used to describe how God delivers his people out of slavery. God delivers his people from the Assyrians. God delivers his people from exile. And it's always rooted in God's mercy and grace. It's the word that Jesus uses in the prayer that we prayed together a few moments ago. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, we are praying that as people of your kingdom, you will Rescue us from the evil that pushes against us and threatens us. And that you will give us grace to live for you in the midst of that. Peter says God rescues the godly from their trials. And what does it mean to be godly? You know, we think, well, that means to be perfect. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think it's people who have committed their lives to the opposite of what these false teachers have committed themselves to. Committed to to knowing Christ and to following Christ. And and we believe the right things. And that's so important to believe the right things. I was going to have us this morning recite together the Apostles' Creed. We're we're getting a little bit short on time, but let's do it anyway. Open up up your hymnals if you don't know it anyway. If you don't know it. Because it's important to, to commit ourselves to believing right things. The front cover of your hymnal. Let us declare our faith in the words of this historic affirmation. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's the core of what we believe. And it's not everything, but that's the core of what we believe, that we commit ourselves to the truth of who God is and who Christ is and the Holy Spirit and the communion of the, of the saints of the church. And, and it's so important that we believe right things. 
Because that's what God's people do. But even more than that, that we live what we believe. And the real test of of whether Christ is really important to us is our commitment to live what we believe. As great as it is to believe right things and as important as it is to believe right things and have the right foundational theology, living what we believe is what reveals who's really important to us. And so we, we live in such a way that we communicate the grace and the mercy and the love of Christ. We are committing ourselves to, to the truths of Scripture. And we live in such a way that we believe Scripture is so true that we want to do everything in our power to obey what the Word says. And in the way we treat people and love people and care for people. And, and I think one of the great tests of, of being in Christ and being, and being on the right path with Christ is, is how we think about the people who are facing the judgment of God. Does, does their judgment cause us to say, yes, I can't wait for God to get them? Or does it cause us to weep and mourn because children that God loves are going to face that kind of eternal judgment? It's like Jesus weeping over Jerusalem that last week of his life and, and wishing that he could draw them to himself. And it comes after he's saying, woe to you and woe to you and woe to you and these things are going to be bad. And then, and then Jesus stands over Jerusalem and he weeps for people who are lost and for people who are facing the judgment of rejecting him. And godly people live with that kind of godly sorrow. We don't want people to face the judgment of God. We want to see them turn around and know the joy and the blessing and the grace of Christ in their lives. That's godly people. And that's our hope. That God knows that our hearts are desiring to follow him. And no matter how things look in the world and no matter how disappointed we are with with, with the way things are happening and how much we may think that God doesn't care and is apathetic about it and he's letting so much go, we have hope to believe that it's simply not true. And what appears in God's silence that appears to the deceivers to be license and God's silence that appears to those who are godly to be abandonment is neither. Because our God keeps his promises. We don't talk a lot in, in the church about the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. It's often referred to in liturgical circles as Holy Saturday or sometimes Black Saturday. It is that moment in, in time in, in Jesus' life when when he has been laid in the tomb and the stone has been rolled in front of it and it's over. I can't imagine what the disciples are feeling and thinking and what it was the, the Paul that was over that room where the disciples of Jesus met on Saturday. All their hopes and dreams gone. 
Even after Jesus was dead, there may be that little hope that something would change. Maybe he wasn't really dead. And then they put him in the tomb and they wrapped him in the claws and they rolled a stone and it's done. And we know from this perspective that it's not done. That the next day, everything changes. And living in the world with so much opposition and difficulty and struggle and watching evil continue to rise, it feels like we're living on Holy Saturday. It feels as though things are, are, are going down the tubes. And, and we begin to panic and... and And if we begin to panic and and we start thinking that, well, you know, everything is lost and and we better fight now because we're going down, then we really are just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. But the reality of our walk with Christ is that we're not on the Titanic. Because Jesus is risen, we have hope. And we know that, that he wins. And that God is in control whether we see it or not. So let me encourage each of us to commit ourselves anew to be the people God has called us to be. And to be, to be faithful as, as he gives us grace to, to walk in his ways and, at the, and in the midst of that to be embraced with the hope that is ours in the risen Christ that despite God's seeming silence he never forgets his promises to judge and to rescue gracious father we thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness And we pray, Father, for your blessing upon us. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.